Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, began his reign over Israel in complete foolishness. He wouldn't listen to wise counsel. He wouldn't pay attention to what was the best thing for him to do as the Lord's king over Israel. And and as a result, he, he lost part of the kingdom. It cost him a great deal. When Rehoboam lost part of the kingdom, he went back home and he decided he'd gather this great army to try to get the kingdom back by force. And God sent a prophet to him and said, you don't need to go do that because what's happened is really what I'm doing. And Rehoboam listened to the Lord. He had a a moment of departure from his previous foolishness and he listened to the Lord and the Lord poured out all kinds of loving kindness on him. So much so that this deteriorating kingdom was established and made strong because of the loving kindness of God in response to that one moment of listening. And and Rehoboam in in the establishing of his kingdom turned his heart away from the Lord and led Israel to do the same. And so God brought the king of Egypt against Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was in danger. And the Egyptian army was right at the door of Jerusalem. And God sends another prophet. Speaks to Rehoboam and says, Rehoboam, you've forsaken me. And so I've forsaken you. God wanted Rehoboam to know that this was happening because he turned away from the Lord. And Rehoboam and the leaders, they humbled themselves before God and they listened once again. And God again opened the doors of his loving kindness. And in these two moments of Rehoboam's life, you see him humble himself before the Lord. And the Lord responds with pouring out his loving kindness. And the sad result of Rehoboam's life is that those two moments didn't become the pattern of his life. In those two moments of humility, he did not fully set his heart to seek the Lord. He enjoyed the loving kindness of God, but then he turned away from God and rebelled against him. After, after focusing on that story in 2 Chronicles eleven twelve, all of last week and then preaching it Sunday, um, I walked away from Sunday morning just thinking to myself and praying to the Lord. And I think several of you felt the same thing. I don't want to be like Rehoboam. I I don't want to have a one moment kind of experience. I want to set my heart to seek the Lord. I was encouraged to hear from several of you how God was working in your life and I just want you to know that that God was working in my life. I, I I don't want to come to these moments and have this experience of God's loving kindness poured out on us and then nothing be different Monday through Saturday of the next week. I want to set my heart to seek the Lord. And so that's how I came into Monday of this week. And it just so happened, you're going to hear me say something like that several times through what I'm going to tell you. I mean, God is so good at orchestrating His plans perfectly. So I come out of that experience on Sunday, and on Monday afternoon, I head to Dallas, where I've been invited to be a part of a prayer meeting 
with a bunch of pastors from all over the nation. There was nearly 200 of us from over 25 different states. I knew about a dozen of those guys. The rest of them were strangers to me. So I was excited to see some of my friends that were there. And we had been invited to what we were told would be a prayer meeting. I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes when invited to things and they're said they're going to be something, sometimes I'm a little skeptical of whether or not it's really going to be that something. And so I didn't know really what to expect, especially when you get a bunch of pastors in the same room. There's just no telling. And so here I come, not knowing exactly what to expect. But I can tell you, from the moment I walked in to the room we were meeting, I just... And I sense the Lord was in this. And so it all began with just kind of brief explanation. And then we just started praying. We got on our knees before God. And we just began to cry out to Him. And God's Spirit just fell on that place. And we, we would sing praises a little bit. Then one of the guys there who had been seeking the Lord for guidance over the past months, would stand up and just offer a little five-minute direction in terms of what we would be praying for and how we'd be calling out on the Lord. And just giving us a a biblical foundation for our calling out on the Lord so that we're actually crying out in a biblical fashion. And then we just pray. And we just prayed. Um... Before I knew it, it was 11 o'clock at night. We had just been praying for hours. And God just poured out His Spirit. And He moved in our lives. We met the next morning. And uh, we prayed from about 8 until noon. And again, we just prayed. And it was fantastic. And I just want to tell you that uh, I, I needed that time of confession of just bearing my soul before the Lord with other men that I knew and around other men that I did not know, just confessing whatever the Lord revealed to me that I needed to confess, crying out to Him for our church. May I pray, I labored in prayer for you. And it was so sweet and good. And... uh I needed that time of refreshing and reminder of what God has called me here uh, to lead us to do. And so I wanted to tell you about that experience, and I could probably talk about it a lot more, but I wanted to tell you about it because I just want you to be encouraged. First, I want you to be encouraged because I just think it's helpful and good for you guys to see what God's doing in my life sometimes, you know? Um, I'm not just up here going through sermons for your sake. God is working in my life, and uh, I'm excited to share those moments with you each Sunday. And so I wanted you to hear about what happened as I walked away from last Sunday. Because during my prayer time on Monday and Tuesday, I felt like God was saying to me, Kevin, here you have been given a moment. It's an incredible moment of me pouring out my loving kindness on you. You've humbled yourself before me. And now I'm just lavishing you with with my grace. Now, 
The question is, will you set your heart to seek after me afresh? Will you, out of this moment, say, you want to seek me more than ever? It was so good. And so I want you to be encouraged. But I also want you to be challenged. Because I I do not believe that anything is ever a coincidence. I don't believe that I preached that sermon, that we walked through that story, talking about a moment, and then I get to Monday and have this experience. And by the way, I wish I'd have counted how many times the people who were in charge of this event used the term, we've come to ask God to give us a moment. They said it over and over and over again. And I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, this is not by chance. This is a moment. You want me to set my heart to seek you. And so then I come back and I know I've got to preach to you guys. And, and I'm thinking, if God's done something in me, this is not coincidence. He's been preparing your hearts to do something in this moment. Like every single Sunday we gather here, we have this moment together. And and I so desperately want us this morning to humble ourselves before the Lord and to seize this moment that God has given us and set our hearts afresh to seek after Him. And so I was praying and seeking the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do on Sunday? Can I just keep going to 2 Chronicles chapter 13 when this has happened and it dawned on me? Maybe God already knew. And that this is really going to work out wonderfully. And so I want to encourage you and challenge you with God's words for our church. From 2 Chronicles chapter 13. King Rehoboam has died and his son Abijah is now the king. He reigns for three years in Jerusalem. And when he becomes king, he's going to experience some of the fallout from his father's reign. If you remember the last characteristic of Rehoboam's reign. Was that he kept doing the one thing that God told him not to do. He was at war continually with Jeroboam. So here Abijah is going to be king. And he becomes king. And guess what he's going to do. He's going to have to contend with Jeroboam. And Second Chronicles chapter 13 gives us a story of Abijah's first encounter, his first battle with Jeroboam. And in this first battle, Abijah has 400,000 valiant warriors. Sounds like an incredible army until you hear about Jeroboam's army. He's got 800,000 valiant warriors. Now how would you like it if your first experience as king over Judah is, guess what, you're going to have to go into battle and you're going to be outnumbered two to one. Those odds are not real great. But you know what Abijah does? Abijah stands up on Mount Zerain and he stands before all Israel and he has something to say to Jeroboam and Israel. Read with me, starting in verse 4. 
Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? All right, covenant of salt. That's just a way to say this covenant is permanent. So what God has done, he has done and will not revoke. Nothing's going to change this. And what Abijah says is, the, the rule, the leadership, the throne is reserved for David and his sons. You guys know this. And it's a permanent agreement. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. And worthless men gathered about him, scoundrels, who proved too strong for Rehoboam the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude, having with you the golden calves with which Jeroboam made for gods for you. So Jeroboam has fashioned these idols. And just like the army of Israel used to have the Ark of a Covenant in front of them to go into war, Jeroboam now has brought these golden calves, these idols, and said to the people, these are our gods, and he's going out to get a victory with his gods in front of him. And Abijah's pointing out the futility of that. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. So he says, you guys have these idols in front of you, and the priests you have serving you are guys who have bought their way into the priesthood. These are not the guys that God has appointed. They've paid their way in, and they're actually serving no gods at all. Useless. Pointing out the futility. They're depending upon these false gods. Verse 10, he continues. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. Every morning and evening they burn to the Lord, burnt offerings and fragrant incense. The showbread is set on the clean table. And the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God. We have set our hearts to seek after Him. But you have forsaken Him. Now behold, God is with us at our head. And His priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Don't you love that? Now the reality is, he gets up and he says all this in front of him. Meanwhile, Jeroboam has him outnumbered and outsmarted. Jeroboam has a battlefront in front of the army of Judah, and he has ambushed them from behind. So he has them 
set up on all sides. He's going to attack them from every direction. He has them outnumbered, outsmarted. The situation is dismal. And, and what does Abijah and what do all of Judah and Benjamin do when they are surrounded and outnumbered? Look at verse 15. When the men of Judah, look at ver, I'm sorry, look at verse, uh, verse 14. When Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both front and rear, so they cried out to the Lord. And the priest blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry. So here's the picture. They're surrounded on every side, outnumbered two to one. And in that scenario, they turn to the Lord and they cry out to the Lord. They've humbled themselves before God. They've cried out to the Lord. And then they simply do what they're supposed to do. The priests blow the trumpets. The people cried out. In humility before the Lord, the priests blow the trumpets. What's that about? Numbers chapter 10, verse 9. God has given direction to his people to sound certain trumpets, for the priests to blow trumpets. When in their land, someone comes against them to create war. And if they'll sound the trumpets, then God will hear from heaven remember their scenario, their situation, and will come in and deliver them from the attack. That's what they're told in Numbers chapter 10, verse 9. And here you have them surrounded on every side. They've been attacked in their land. They've cried out to the Lord, and then they sound the trumpets. Both of those actions are saying to the Lord, we know you have promised to listen to us. When we humble ourselves, when we cry out to you, you said you would hear from heaven. When we blow on these trumpets in the, in the setting of war, you will hear from heaven and you will come deliver us. And they do exactly what they're supposed to do. And then the men raise the battle cry and they head into the battle. So they've cried out before the Lord, they've humbled themselves the Lord, and then they're doing what they're supposed to do and look what God does. When the men of Judah raised the war cry, verse 15, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. God did what only God could do. When the people humbled themselves before God, did what they were supposed to do, then God did what only God can do. Jeroboam never did recover. He lost 60% of his army in that battle. And he never recovered. And the story ends by telling us that God dealt Jeroboam a death blow, literally. But Abijah became strong and was blessed. God's people humble themselves, cry out to the Lord, and do what they're supposed to do, then God does what only God can do. Every time. Isn't that encouraging? Now consider if you were living in the day of the chronicler and you heard that story. Here you are back in Israel under Persian rule Temple's been rebuilt, not the same as it used to be. 
You're trying to piece things together and become the people God wants you to be. But you've got no king on the throne. You're waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Here you are, back in that scenario, under somebody else's authority, and you're told this story. I mean, wouldn't you at that moment be encouraged to cry out on the Lord? To cry out to the Lord saying, we need you. We're outnumbered. We're under somebody else's authority. We have no king. The temple we have is not like it used to be. We don't even know what tribe we're from. We don't even know what's going on. Wouldn't you be encouraged to cry out to the Lord and to know that if you just cry out to the Lord, you humble yourself before Him, and you do what you're supposed to do, that He will do what only He can do. And so they were encouraged to cry out on the Lord and wait for Him to bring the King that they knew He'd promised. Now think about us. I mean, how much more encouraging should this story be for you and for me? I mean, it's a whole lot better to be waiting for the second coming of the king than to be waiting for the first coming. And here we stand fully recognizing that the king has come. His name is Jesus. And he gave his life on the cross to forgive us of our sins so that everything we've ever done wrong against the Lord can be washed clean through confession to Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. And here we stand waiting for the king under all of what's happening in this world. We're outnumbered. We're outmanned. We're surrounded on every side. And yet we have this story about who God is. And he says to us, if you cry out and you do what you're supposed to do, I will still do what only I can do. I think we need to be encouraged to cry out. To cry out to the Lord. To be desperate to cry for His work in our lives through confession of our sin. Listen, I want to encourage you to cry out in confession of your sin regularly. So sometimes when we confess our sins, you know how what it sounds like? Lord, I'm just, not, I'm just not doing what I need to do. I'm really busy right now. I've, I've put other things in front of you. Lord, I need to read my Bible more. I'm sorry I haven't read it as much as you, know, you want me to. I know I haven't prayed enough. I want to pray more. I'm not as nice as I need to be to those people in my life. I've not shared my faith like you, you want me to. And we confess our sins as if we're reading this list that is more similar to our grocery list than a heinous offense before a holy God. We need to be, bring back those moments where we cry out and we say, I am rotten to the core. I stand before my people every Sunday and I preach your praises, but the reality is I am far from you. And I need you to rescue me or I will be lost. We, we need to cry out in a way that represents what God sees, not what we see. When we look at ourselves, we think we're busy. When God looks at us, He thinks we don't love Him. Because if we loved Him, we would make time to seek Him. And it's about time that we say, I'm going to stop crying out with my vantage point. I'm going to start crying out the way God sees me. Because if I humble myself before God, He will hear me. 
There is never a time in Scripture where God's people humble themselves that God did not pour out His mercy. That He did not pour out His loving kindness. And I just want to encourage you to see that humility and crying out before the Lord is the best avenue to experience God's loving kindness. And I just believe that God wants Southside to cry out to the Lord to really cry out, to surrender our hearts before Him, believing that He always responds to humility. Every movement of God, every unfolding of His mercy, every revival and great awakening has occurred out of crying out for God. We need to be people who cry out. And and I honestly don't believe it's circumstantial that things have happened the way they've happened. That the text we come to, the turning point of the entire story, is a people crying out to the Lord. We also need to do what we're supposed to do. I mean, this morning, if we cry out to the Lord... If tomorrow morning you cry out to the Lord, the next question is, are you going to do what you're supposed to do? You know, we can start in the home. We just say that there are things that every one of us is supposed to be doing as husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, children. There's something supposed to be happening in the home. Students, if your parents don't believe you honor them, You're not doing what you're supposed to do. Fathers, if your wives don't believe you love them like Christ loves the church, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I mean, we've got to cry out and then do simply what we're supposed to do in the home and in the church. Men, we need you to lead and serve. Ladies, lead and serve. We need need students, youth, Children, to do your God-given calling, your role here in this body. We, we simply all need to be doing what we're supposed to do. And, and then as a church, here we are, a, a family of believers. And man, God was so gracious to me just to remind me and confirm and clarify at least three things that I am supposed to believe we are supposed to do as a church. And and I just want to invite you into that this morning with with hopefully more clarity than you've ever heard. Number one, as a church, we are supposed to be reaching families. I mean, the family is under attack. The family is outnumbered. The The family is pinned in on every side. We have the sacredness of marriage being redefined in our culture. We have the issue of life being diminished, and unborn children being killed, killing the family. We have this deterioration of the role of the father. We have um, our kids disrespecting roles of authority and discipline. There's a lost art of discipline and authority in them. On every side, the family's being attacked. We need to be a church. I believe God wants us to be a church that's about rescuing the family, about defining it biblically, and about seeing restoration, redemption, and purpose in the family. 
believe that's what we are supposed to do. I also believe, number two, that we are supposed, as a church, we are supposed to um, encourage and play a part in God's movement on our campuses. And now I want you to hear this clearly, but both non-students and students. I've always loved college students. Um, and over the years, being here in this community, I felt like part of the reason that God brought me here was to lead Southside to be a refuge, a place that students could come and get solid biblical teaching. Because unfortunately, in some of our campus situations that espouse Christian teaching, it's not happening from the perspective of Scripture like it should be, like it used to be. And so I get thinking, well, we're going to be that place where students can come and rally and get encouraged in God's Word and get equipped. And, and I think that's true, and I still believe that. But, but, I, but on Monday and Tuesday, I felt like God was saying to me, why don't you want to believe me for a complete radical change of the universities? Just that I can change them. You don't have to be this one little light of truth, but I can radically change those campuses. Okay, I, I want to believe that. And I believe that God wants us to be a part of seeing universities in our community experience revival. I believe that. Now, I'm most familiar with Hardin-Simmons. And that's our Baptist school. And as much as I believe that God wants to bring revival to all of our campuses and, and want us to be a part of that, um, I have a chief concern for Hardin-Simmons as our Baptist university. They say that they're a Christian, <clears throat> providing Christian education. I want revival on that campus. I want to see that place changed. Way last way beyond any of our tenure here. I mean, how long has that campus been moving away from the truth of God's word? I mean, isn't it time, students, that you believe God wants to move it a different direction? Instead of complaining about what your professor says, instead of telling others what your professor does that's against the Scripture, maybe we should all cry out. We should humble ourselves, confess our own sin instead of pointing out the sin of my professor, and see if God might do what only God can do if I cry out and do what I'm supposed to do. I just believe He can do that. He can change a campus. Number three, I believe that our church is supposed to be about reaching to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of lost people in our community, and if we're going to go to the ends of the earth, it must start for all of us right here. We've got to be sharing our faith with the people that God has placed around us 
And as we share our faith in our community, God's going to use our church to touch the ends of the earth. He is. And we're supposed to do that. The the group that we have prayed for for 12 years now in East Asia, 12 years we've been praying, crying out, going, being there, serving. Under the leadership of our connecting person there, this last summer, get this, 490 people from unreached people groups came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior during the summer. God's using us to touch the ends of the earth. And I received yesterday an invitation for our church to be the lead church in providing a five-day conference for groups of people from all over East Asia who are responsible for reaching over 420 unreached people groups. Our church has been invited to be the lead church in providing a five-day conference to equip and to challenge and to lead those people in reaching the unreached all across East Asia. Millions of people. And we have been invited to be a part of equipping that team that is responsible for reaching over 420 unreached people groups. Is that not incredible? Here we are in Abilene. This little church and this little dot and this little place in West Texas and somebody from across the globe says, God's laid it on our hearts that you're the church that needs to come and lead us to help us reach over 420 unreached people groups. And God's moving. And we need like 20 or 30 of you to say, I'm going to give a week of my time and a lot of my money to go and help be a part of reaching the ends of the earth. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to believe that God wants us to reach families. We're supposed to believe that God wants to use us to change the universities. And we're supposed to believe that God wants to use us to touch the ends of the earth because God wants to change the world and we have a part to play in that. We have a part to play. If we will cry out, and if we will do what we're supposed to do, then God will do what only He can do. And we will see families that are broken, rescued. Marriages that are ripped apart, restored. Children who are rebellious, brought back into submission to the authority of their parents and to the Lord. We will do what we're supposed to do. We will see God bring a change. Not just to students' lives, but to the campus, to the universities, to the faculty, to what they're doing to bring about godless teaching. If we will believe and do what we're supposed to do, we're going to see God use us to reach parts of the world that have our name on it. The ends of the earth. It all starts with a moment, a moment of crying out. Today is a special moment, but oh, I do not want it to remain a moment. That it would become setting our hearts to seek the Lord. And so I'm just going to invite you during a time of response right now. 
to cry out to the Lord. We've got about 10 minutes left. And for these 10 minutes, I just want us to cry out to the Lord. I'm going to give you some guidance on how to do that. If you want to get on your knees before the Lord, you can do that. If you want to sit in your pew, that's fine. If you want to get with somebody, that's fine. If you want to do it by yourself, that's okay too. But here's the deal. I cannot accept that what's happened over the last weeks and several months of God's work in my life is a coincidence. That it's not intended to be something in your life. And so I'm just praying that you would cry out and you just start with crying out in confession of your sin. Crying out and surrender to Jesus Christ. And so you, you just, if you need to come to the altar, you come to the prayer benches, it's all open. It's, it's, this is your moment to cry out. And so if you want to get on your knees, you want to stay seated, however you want to do it, let's cry out before the Lord.